Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Jesus really could have used a PR firm. He might have been a nice guy who had some great ideas, created the universe, but his public relations instincts were pretty miserable. So think about the story that we read last week. Jesus's first act of public ministry that was recorded in John's Gospel. At a wedding, Jesus made 600 or 900 gallons of wine out of water, but he didn't do it in front of everybody. He didn't even take credit for it. He just let the wine be served and went along on his Jesus-y way, which was such a missed opportunity. (laughs) And then today we read the story of Jesus's debut sermon in Luke's gospel. Jesus had gone down to the river, the Jordan River. He'd been baptized by John. He'd spent his 40 days in the wilderness fending off Satan's temptations. And now he's ready to preach his first sermon. Now, any PR rep worth his or her salt would have told Jesus what every realtor knows, which is that if you want to make a splash, it's all about location, location, location. So you're about to give your first sermon, and you really want to make an impact. You want everybody to know you have arrived. Where should you go? Jerusalem. You should go to the temple. You should work your connections and figure out a way to get to preach from that pulpit. Not Jesus, though. Where does he go? He goes straight back home. He goes back to Nazareth, where he grew up. To Nazareth, which was a little agricultural village in the backwater region of Galilee. Nazareth was the same place that would later prompt Jesus' disciple Nathaniel to say, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? For his big debut sermon, Jesus heads to his hometown, wanders into the synagogue on a Saturday like he usually did. He didn't announce which scripture he would like to preach from. He just took the scroll that was given him, Isaiah, and sort of scans through it, finds a couple of verses he likes, reads them out loud, literally two verses. Then he preaches his sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he says. And that's it. A one-sentence sermon. Don't get any ideas about that. (laughs) It is a public relations expert's nightmare, right? Now, to be fair, the story goes on. We'll read the second half of it next week, and you'll see that Jesus does have a few more things to say as the story unfolds, but from a PR perspective, the story doesn't really get any better. You'll see what I mean next week. So Jesus takes this opportunity given by his first sermon, and from a human perspective of wanting to make an impact, he totally blows it. From our perspective, Jesus fails pretty badly on the how of his first sermon. But of course, the how of a sermon isn't all that matters. It's not even most of what matters in a sermon. There's also the the what So, 
Does Jesus do any better on the what than he did on the how? Well, let's look at what he actually says. In his sermon, he reads some lovely sounding verses from Isaiah. He reads promises that God has made, had made to Israel centuries ago. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those are incredible proclamations. Good news to the poor, liberty to captives, healing to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. They are inspiring and hopeful just to hear the words. But then there's what Jesus says once he's read them. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I think it must have been a little bit of a head scratcher for the people who were in the synagogue in Nazareth that day. I mean, first of all, that's a pretty bold claim to make, no matter who you are. But they knew who Jesus was. Jesus was the guy they'd grown up with. He was the person they ran into in the markets. He was the carpenter they took their furniture to when it needed to be repaired. How could Jesus be the one who fulfilled these age-old prophecies? And then there was the matter of whether it was true. I mean, was Jesus really fulfilling these prophecies? If he'd been sent to proclaim these new realities, these realities of freedom and healing and good news, then why on earth was he starting here in Nazareth? How exactly were these great proclamations supposed to go out to all of Israel from the synagogue in Nazareth? Not to mention the question of whether those things that he said were actually happening. I mean, you can kind of imagine the people in the synagogue looking around at each other, maybe sticking their heads out the door and seeing, was it really happening? Were there formerly blind people running around declaring that they could see? Had the Roman forces suddenly up and left and left them free from their oppressive occupiers? Those were the things that Jesus was proclaiming. But were they true? It's a good question, a fair question, and probably as real a question for us now as it would have been for those who heard Jesus that day in the synagogue in Nazareth. Because we look around at our world and we see so much that does not look like the fulfillment of Jesus' proclamations. We see so many who are poor. We see so many who are captive to authoritarian governments, to war and violence, to systems of racism and sexism and economic exploitation. We see so many who are sick with addiction, with disease, with mental illness. We look around and understandably, I think we say this, is the year of the Lord's favor. And in the face of that dissonance, that disconnect between what we hear Jesus say and what we experience in the world around us, in the face of that disconnection, I think we face two temptations. 
The first is just to conclude that Jesus was wrong. We see so much sin and evil and brokenness and things not as they should be in the world around us that we conclude that Jesus' words were just too good to be true. Maybe he meant them. Maybe he intended the best. But life and history just don't seem to support what he said. We all know people who have reached this conclusion, right? Friends, family members, colleagues. They may wish that what Jesus said were true, but they just can't reconcile those words with their lived reality. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us have probably felt or wondered that somewhere along the line. Maybe we even feel or wonder it today. In the face of the dissonance between Jesus' words and our experience, we're tempted to conclude that Jesus just got it wrong. I think the other temptation that we face when we confront this disconnect is just to spiritualize Jesus' words until the disconnect seems to go away. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we hear Jesus say he came to proclaim good news to the poor, we decide he means to the poor in spirit. Or we hear Jesus' promise to bring liberty to the captives, and we decide that he means the spiritually captive. We interpret Jesus' promises to be not about the physical realm, but about the spiritual realm. And by doing that, we can get rid of the problem of the disconnect between Jesus' words and the reality of the world as we experience it. Now, let me be clear. I do believe that Jesus was talking about spiritual poverty, about spiritual blindness, spiritual captivity and oppression. But I don't believe Jesus was only talking about them. I believe he was talking about spiritual and physical poverty, about spiritual and physical oppression. Why else would Jesus say, as he does in Matthew 25, that when we feed the hungry or welcome the stranger or clothe the naked or visit the prisoner, we do those things to him? Or why would James write in chapter 2 of his letter, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? See, I don't think Jesus makes the distinction between the physical and the spiritual that we often do. Because Jesus can see in a way that we can't that the physical and the spiritual are inextricably interwoven. And so we're wrong when we deal with the tension between the words of Jesus' promises and the reality of life as we experience it by just spiritualizing Jesus' words. Jesus may very well have been talking about more than just physical poverty, blindness, and oppression, but he certainly wasn't talking about less. So what does that leave us with? What sense can we make of it when we read read that Jesus said in the synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago that that day 
the words of the prophet Isaiah had been fulfilled in that place. When even then, not to mention now, there seems to be so much evidence to suggest that those words haven't been fulfilled. The key, I think, lies in Jesus' grammar. So bear with me for the, on this. When Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, the verb has been fulfilled is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is used when the action of a verb was completed in the past, but the effect of that action continues on in the present. So let me give you an example. If I say, Joe has made a cake, I'm using the perfect tense. I'm saying that the action of making the cake took place in the past, but the cake is now available for eating. The effect of the past action continues in the present. But if I just said, Joe made a cake, there would be no indication that the effect of Joe's cake making continues in the present. Joe may have made the cake yesterday and eaten it all on the spot. The point of using the perfect tense is to show that that completed action has an ongoing effect. So when Jesus says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, what he's saying is that the act of fulfilling the scripture is complete, but the effect of that fulfillment continues. The action of proclaiming good news to the poor and sight to the blind and freedom to the captives and the oppressed, that action is complete, but the effect of that action continues. And all of that, I think, points to two implications. First, that Jesus himself was the action that fulfilled the scriptures, and that the effect of Jesus, of that action, continues into our present, that it plays out in us and through us today. So let me explain what I mean by those. First, Jesus himself was the action that fulfilled the scriptures. So when you think about what Jesus did that day in the synagogue in Nazareth, the only real action he took was speaking the words of the scripture. But I think it would be a pretty narrow reading of what Jesus did, that when he said that the scriptures had been fulfilled, that he was referring only to his literal speaking of the words. Instead, I think Jesus meant that he himself was the action that fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. His existence, his presence there in that synagogue on that day, on earth in general, He himself was the action by which the prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus himself, the Son of God, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And that means that the things that Jesus does the things he did while he lived on earth and the things he continues to do through his spirit, the things that Jesus does are the effects 
of the fact that he was the fulfillment of the promise of the scriptures. So when throughout the rest of his earthly ministry, Jesus healed the sick or fed the crowds or cast out demons or welcomed outcasts, when Jesus did those things, they were the effects of Jesus himself being the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Those things didn't happen so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. They happened because the prophecy had already been fulfilled. Why is this remotely important? Well, I think it partly explains that disconnect that I talked about earlier between Jesus' words and about the ongoing realities of brokenness and sin that we see in the world. The presence of those realities isn't proof that Jesus didn't fulfill the scriptures. Instead, they show that because Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, the effects of that fulfillment continue to unfold, but are not yet complete. And that brings us to the second implication of Jesus using this tense, this perfect tense, that the effect of Jesus being the action that fulfilled the scripture, the effect of that continues not just in the, in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, but it continues in our present. That the effects of Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecies of scripture play out in us and through us, even today. And that means that those things that Jesus proclaimed in the synagogue in Nazareth, good news to the poor, freedom to the captive and the oppressed, healing to the blind, we can experience those things in us here, now, today. So maybe today you find yourself feeling captive. You're captive to a pattern of sin that you can't shake, or captive to a sense of despair that weighs you down, captive to past wrongs that have been done to you that have trapped you in unforgiveness. If you find yourself feeling captive, then take heart, because Jesus has already fulfilled the promise of the scriptures. And the effects of that fulfillment can work themselves out in you. If you give over your sense of captivity to Jesus, then he will free you from it. Maybe not all at once, but he will. Hour by hour, day by day, if you invite Jesus into your feeling of captivity, then he will bring you out of it. He will bring you freedom because Jesus himself is the fulfillment of God's promises. Or maybe today you're feeling blind. You might feel blind to God's presence in your life. You believe that God's with you, but you can't see him, you can't experience him. Or you might be in the midst of pain, grief, hardship, and it's hard to trust that God is still good. 
So you're feeling blind to God's goodness. Or maybe you're looking at your life and seeing declining health or mobility or resources, and you're feeling blind to how God might be calling you to how God might still be able to use you in the world. If you're feeling blind today, then take heart. Jesus has already fulfilled the promises of Scripture, and he will restore your sight. Again, if you offer to Jesus that feeling of being blind, if you offer it hour by hour and day by day, then he will open your eyes to his presence in your life and his call on your life. And what is true of what Jesus can do in us is also true of what he can do through us. Because we are the body of Christ in the world, and so we are invited to participate in that work that Jesus is doing of bringing about the ongoing effects of his fulfillment of the scriptures. We're invited to join in Jesus' work of proclaiming that Jesus brings good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, and sight to the blind. We can proclaim it to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, whether or not they already know Jesus. Not in a scary or obnoxious way, but just by sharing our own stories. So maybe you have a neighbor who is wrestling with grief or disappointment. Then you can ask God to prompt you if it might be a good time at some point to share with that person a story of your own grief or disappointment and how God met you in that. Maybe you have a friend who's shared with you that they are stuck in a pattern of brokenness, of bad choices that they don't know how to get out of. You can ask God to nudge you when there's a good time to to empathize with them and their pain and their frustration, and maybe to share how God is helping free you from your own patterns of brokenness or bad choices. Jesus invites us to join him in the work of proclaiming the good news. But remember, he doesn't just care about people's spiritual captivity. He cares about their physical captivity, too. He cares about people's physical poverty, physical blindness, physical oppression, Because for Jesus, the spiritual and the physical are interwoven. And Jesus invites us to be part of bringing about the ongoing effects of his fulfillment of the scriptures in the physical realm, too. I read a remarkable story the other day of people doing just this. It's a story about Calvin College and Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And people in the college and the seminary had been hearing about and and learning about some remarkable work that a Baptist seminary had been doing in Angola prison in Louisiana, one of the country's worst, most violent prisons. And they were inspired by hearing what work the seminary was doing there and the difference it was making in the prison in Louisiana. And so 
students and staff from Calvin started getting involved at a prison near them called Handlin Prison, a state penitentiary about 45 minutes from campus. And over time, what developed out of people going there to volunteer, to teach a few classes, or to to work with the inmates, what evolved was an accredited degree program that offers a bachelor's degree in ministry studies to inmates. So Calvin professors teach the courses, Calvin students come and serve as tutors, and they call it the Handlin Campus, just like they have a Grand Rapids campus. They even had a basketball game at the prison, Handlin students versus Grand Rapids students. And what is the effect of this? Well, first of all, the inmates receive an education. They're being equipped for a fruitful life when their sentences have been served. But some of these guys are in prison for life. They are never going to get out. But what they now find themselves is that they are educated and equipped to serve as pastors within the prison. They have been called and they have been equipped to offer the hope of the gospel and the dignity to future inmates that they themselves have experienced because of what Calvin College and seminary have done. And not just that, but the program has also given prisoners an ability to give back to the community, to do something, even if it's tiny, to help right some of the wrongs that they've committed. So they were given permission, the the prisoners and students involved in this program, to create a vegetable garden on the prison grounds. And the produce of their garden, Calvin College buys at market value and uses it in their their dining halls to serve to their students. And the money that the uh, prisoners receive is donated. And what, what they decided to donate that money to was an organization called Safe Haven, which provides shelter and services to women who are victims of domestic violence. And why did they choose that organization to give their money to? Because a number of those Calvin students who are inmates at Handlin are there for domestic violence convictions. And this was just a small but concrete way that they could contribute to justice for victims like theirs. These students who are captives in Handlin prison may be there for years. Some may never be physically freed. But through the faithful work of the faculty and staff and students of Calvin College and Calvin Seminary, their spirits have been set free. Now, obviously, not everyone is in a position to start an accredited college program in a prison. What Calvin is doing represents their particular calling, the intersection of their gifts and abilities with the needs of a community around them. But it makes me wonder, what are our particular gifts and abilities, both each of us individually, but also us as a congregation? What are our gifts and abilities, and how might they intersect with the needs that are around us? 
How might Jesus be inviting us to be part of his work of bringing about the effects of the truth that he himself is the fulfillment of the scriptures? It's a question that I want us to wrestle with this year. And we'll talk more in the weeks ahead about how we might do some of that wrestling. But for now, I hope that we will rest on the great good news that Jesus is here, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, that he has proclaimed good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to the captive and oppressed. And let's praise him that even here, even now, even today, Jesus fulfills those promises in our hearing. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.